2 Corinthians chapter 5. I've entitled my message, The Believer's Longing for Home. The Believer's Longing for Home. You know, over 40 million Americans move every year. That's about 13% of our population moves every year. It would appear that we're kind of a restless people. But frankly, for many people, one of the most important or maybe exciting days in their life is moving into their first home or maybe moving into their dream home or as realtors like to say, moving into their forever home. Well, we know as believers, this world is not our home and our forever home is in heaven. And I hope that as a believer, you're longing for your forever home. That's what Paul is talking about right here in this passage of Scripture. And it's been true down through the ages. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10 says of Abraham, For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was looking for a city. Remember, Abraham dwelled in a tent his entire life, had no foundation. He's looking for an established city whose foundations are secure, And it isn't going to be packed up and moved or moved on. So he was looking for that city, that city that we think of as our heavenly home. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 10 reminds us, He hath put eternity in our hearts. So God has placed within every human being a yearning, a desire, a longing for a heavenly home. C.S. Lewis wrote this, he said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And this world doesn't satisfy. It isn't intended to satisfy. Yes, there's moments of pleasure and delight and satisfaction, but this world doesn't satisfy because God created us for another world that ultimately will satisfy. Augustine, the great theologian hundreds of years ago, said this, Oh God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So we have restless hearts yearning and longing for our permanent home called heaven. And that's what Paul is talking about here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I've kind of divided it up this way into three ideas. First of all, the determination concerning heaven. He says in verse 1, we know. Now that's pretty confident. The determination concerning heaven, we know. Verse 1 says, for we know... That if our earthly house, this tent, referring to his body, referring to our bodies, is destroyed, and they all will be, is destroyed, we have a building, he continues with the analogy, uh, we have a different body, a different building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. From the scriptures, we learn two things. First of all, death's inevitability. Death's inevitability. Death comes for all. We don't know of anyone who escapes it. Death comes for all. It's like an unsympathetic landlord that's shaking an eviction notice in our face and saying, you got to get out. It's time to leave. Death comes to all of us. But that eviction, 
that eviction notice merely releases believers from a wretched, dilapidated slum and ushers us into a grand and glorious heavenly neighborhood in the eternal city where our heavenly Father dwells. So it's not a bad thing to get evicted from this world and this life and this body because we have something much better waiting for us, is what Paul is telling us. Now remember, the apostle Paul was a tent maker. So when he wrote this about this tent, he knew what he was speaking about. Paul was a leather worker. Every Jewish boy, even if they became a rabbi like Paul was, a leading rabbi, still learned to trade. Every Jewish boy learned to trade. And for Paul, it was leather working or tent making. So he uses that analogy. The apostle Paul uses that comparison of his earthly body. He calls it a tent. Now, why did he call it a tent? I think it's a very appropriate analogy because a tent is something very plain and very temporary. Even for people who go camping on the weekends in a tent, you might enjoy it for a couple of days, but chances are you don't want to live there. Maybe your kids say, dad, can we just do this all the time? But you don't want to live there. Nobody wants to live in a tent. And Paul understood that a tent is plain, a house is beautiful. A tent is plain, a tent is temporary. So he continues on. But our heavenly body, what does he say in verse 1? Is something that is beautiful and permanent. So he says this body is temporary, it's plain, it breaks down, it wears out, it grows old. We set it aside, but someday we're going to have a body that never grows old, doesn't get tired. It's going to be beautiful and it's fit for the ecology of glory. And he says what here in this verse? Made without hands. In other words, obviously this body was made by human beings. My parents, your parents. But our future body is made without hands. In other words, he's saying, by God. Our future body is made by God. You know, mankind doesn't build things to last as much as we would like to think that they do. Whatever man builds, it eventually breaks down. It's destroyed. It decays. There are hurricanes, there are tornadoes, there are floods, and there are fires. Think of the fires of California, and the whole towns have been burned up, as well as the forests. Think of the hurricanes that have come up from the sea there, now out of the Atlantic Ocean, and have, have parked over Louisiana or Mississippi, and some of them even hit New York this year, and flooded the towns and destroyed people's homes. Whatever man builds... Nature can destroy, maybe we would say God will destroy. Man doesn't build things to last, but God is building us a body that will last. God didn't intend for these bodies to last either. This tent, God built this body with pre-programmed obsolescence, we could say. But our future body is going to be eternal, it's built to last. It's built to go the long haul. That's why we would say death's inevitability is something that every person needs to consider. You've heard me say, you're not ready to live, really, until you've prepared to die. You're not really ready to live this life, let alone the next life, unless you've been prepared to die. Because all of us are going to die. So have you? 
Have you prepared yourself to die? Most people don't even like to talk about it, and even fewer probably make preparations for it. I'm not talking about retirement, and I'm not talking about a funeral plan. I'm talking about what comes after that. When we quit breathing and the brain waves stop and our heart quits beating, have we made preparations for that? So let me say to anyone that might be here today who is not prepared to die, that's why Jesus came. He came to give you eternal life so you wouldn't have to fret over death, so you could have eternal life in his salvation plan, his shed blood. Notice Christians don't have to worry about that because he says, notice this assertion in verse 1 still, we know. For we know. Paul is saying we have a no-so salvation, indicating that every believer has the confidence that we're going to receive a glorified body. And it's not something that is a remote possibility. It's not something that's a vague wish. It's something that's a fixed reality. He says we know. Every Christian can know that they're going to heaven, that they're, they can know that they're going to have an eternal body. So death's inevitability, second heaven's reality. How do we know? Because the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us how we can know. A Christian doesn't have to consult a fortune teller, a soothsayer, an astrologist, a horoscope to find out what's on the other side of the grave. All he has to do is consult God's word. We just have to look at God's word. You've heard me say, why would anyone substitute human speculation when we have divine revelation? Why would we listen to what other people have to say or other people have written about dying and going to heaven and coming back or whatever the case might be? Why would we ever substitute human speculation when we have divine revelation telling us how we can know that we're going to heaven? Believers should long for heaven. Paul talks about his longing for heaven. He wanted to be unclothed and clothed with his eternal body. We should long for heaven like a prisoner longs for freedom, like a sick man longs for health, like a starving man longs for food and sustenance, like a soldier longs for peace and returning home. You realize your view of eternity, your view of your future home in heaven says a lot, says a lot to your family, says a lot to your friends. It says a lot about your faith. Hope when facing death, and all of us will. If you have hope when you're facing death, it is the last opportunity for you as a Christian to exhibit your faith in God and adorn his promises. You're saying, I believe the promises of God. I put my full trust in them, and I'm adorning them, those promises, with my life. I'm exemplifying them both my faith and my hope. Remember, Paul writes chapter 5 here that we're looking at from a context of sickness and aging and imminent martyrdom. He understood that he was going to die, and he wasn't fearful of it because he said, we know. 
Jesus says, because I live, you shall live also, John 14, verse 9. Death is not the end for a believer. It is a new beginning for a believer. So death's inevitability, we know, he says in verse 1. Look at the next couple of verses, verses 2 through 5. The anticipation of heaven, we groan. He says that twice, we groan. There's a, a longing, a desire. Let me read those verses again. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven, from God. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, referring to our body again, this earthly tabernacle, this tent, we groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, better clothed, further clothed, that mortality might be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. There's a lot there. First, let's look at this anticipation of heaven. We groan. Paul conveys two additional thoughts in these verses. Verses 2 through 4, there is a desire for completion. Every one of us who is a believer, and probably true of unbelievers, have a desire for something better, to be completed. Sometimes people say, well, when I get married, I'll feel completed. No, you'll be married. Your completeness comes from God, okay? Our partner, in some ways, maybe completes this because they're very different than us. But our completeness comes from God. There is a desire for completeness, for fulfillment of what we're intended to be through creation. Paul was anxious for the return of Christ or his departure and death. He was anxious for either one. Either the Lord comes back for him in the rapture or he dies and he goes to be with the Lord. He was anxious for both of those options. Why? He tells us why. So he could be clothed with his new body. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and following, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all be asleep, but we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, when the trump shall sound, we shall all be changed. Verses 51 and 52. So Paul wrote that, and Paul longed for that. He wanted to be changed into his new body his glorified body. He was anxious for that, whether the Lord came in the rapture or whether he died and the Lord ushered him home. He longed for his glorified body. Why? Why did he long for that glorified body? Not primarily because then he would be free of weakness and pain. That wasn't it. Sure, he had weakness, he had pain. Look what he'd been through. But it was not primarily to be free of his weakness and his pain because he would be free of his sin. And he says that. He says in Romans 7, 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Paul wanted to be loose from this body, this body of sin, he calls it. This body that was always drawn away to the wrong things and failing the Lord. He says it in another place this way. Wretched man that I am, 
Who will set me free from the body of this death? Romans 7, 24. He called his body something that was perpetually drawing him away from the Lord, and he wanted his new body so he'd no longer have the temptation to sin, the propensity to sin. So he says, we groan, speaking for all of us. We desire, we long, we sigh for heaven in our new bodies. He was not groaning because he was unhappy with his human body. <laughs> Paul could get a nip here and a tuck there and maybe a lift there. That didn't, they didn't do that in that day. But he wasn't saying, I'm sagging and I'm dragging and I'm bagging, so I need a nip and a tuck and a lift. That wasn't what he's saying. He was not groaning because he was unhappy with his human body, because he wanted to be clothed with his heavenly body. Paul wasn't, you know, self-depreciating about the body that God had given him. That wasn't it. He wanted something better, something eternal, something that didn't have the propensity to sin. That's what he's saying. We all sigh, I think. If we've been a Christian for any length of time, we've grown older and we realize our propensity to wander, the sin, we all sigh with our frustrations, with our limitations in this body and in this life. Sometimes we don't have the strength Sometimes we don't have the desire. Sometimes we don't have the knowledge. Sometimes we don't have the ability to do what needs to be done, what should be done. And we sigh. Oh, God, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's Scripture in its reality. We desire, but we don't perform, Paul says. Paul continues with his analogy in these verses stating that we shall not be found naked. Now, why does he say that? We shall not be a spirit unclothed with a body is what he's saying. We shall not be found naked. That describes possessing a soul without a resurrection body. That is exactly what Paul is talking about. He's correcting some misideas, misconceptions some wrong thinking, wrong beliefs about heaven and what we possess when we get there. So he's saying, we shall not be found naked. We're going to have a resurrection body. This doctrine was in sharp contrast to what the ancient world had taught for hundreds and even maybe a thousand years. It's called philosophical dualism, and it had affected the church. Philosophical dualism is saying the soul is good, the spirit is good, it's going to live somewhere forever, but the body is bad. It decays, it chooses wrongly, it sins, etc. The Greek and Roman philosophers all taught philosophical dualism. And Paul is saying, no. It's not like someday our body's going to be laid in the grave and then our spirit is released and we spend eternity just as a, as a spirit. No, we are intended by God to have a body, a spirit or soul inside of a body, but it's going to be a different body than what we have now. Let me give you some quotes from the Greek world about the body. The body, uh, they said, 
is a tomb. The Plantis could say he was ashamed that he had a body. He hated his body because of his propensity. Epictetus said of himself, Thou art a poor soul burdened with a corpse. Seneca wrote, I am a higher being and born for a higher thing than to be the slave of my body, which I look upon as only a shackle put upon my freedom, a detestable habitation. So the Greek and Roman thinkers said the body is bad. It's got all these wrong propensities. It's got all of these limitations. We're shackled to a body, and someday we're going to be set free in just our soul. Paul says, no, no, no. That's not true, and that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is clear at death. We don't go to a place of annihilation. That's what some people teach in our world today. We don't go to a place of annihilation, nor are we disembodied spirits floating around in eternity on a cloud or something. We're not disembodied spirit. We are people that have a spirit dwelling inside an eternal glorified body that is suited for the ecology of glory. Christians will have a perfect body. There is a desire, a longing, a sighing for completion because we realize this is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin has impacted all of creation, and even the Bible tells us in Romans that all of creation groans. Not just human beings groaning, all of creation groans to be perfected, to be completed. So there is a desire for completion. We groan. Second, he tells us in verse 5, we have the deposit of the Spirit. Now that may seem like an awkward wording, but that's the wording of the Scripture. We are deposited with the Spirit at the point of salvation. Matter of fact, Paul says, if you do not have the Spirit of God, you are none of Christ. You are not saved. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you haven't been born again, and you're not heaven-bound. But you are given the Spirit. He uses a number of analogies and metaphors, but it's like a deposit that was given to you. Look what he says in verse 5. Now, he who has prepared us, that's God who's preparing us for heaven. And part of the way that he prepares us is by giving us the Holy Spirit to uh, teach us, uh, to convict us, to change us. Now, uh, he says, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. As salvation, God gives us the Holy Spirit to prepare us for heaven. God's ultimate purpose in salvation is not justification and not even sanctification. Ultimately, his purpose is glorification. But we have to get justified for, and we are in the process of sanctification, and then someday we'll experience glorification. But it's not just about getting saved. It's getting changed, and ultimately the big change comes when we go to glory. The Spirit is the down payment on what will ultimately be coming and has already been paid for by Jesus' death on the cross. We are sealed like a letter headed for its destination. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. It says it right there. Let's, we're only a page away. Let's turn over there. For who also has sealed us 
and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So when you got saved, God stamped you like a postage stamp, like a postmark, and he stamped you and said, bound for glory. And nothing can interrupt your journey to that destination because the Spirit is inside you and he has sealed you like a sealed letter. In an ancient world, they would roll up their letter. They didn't put it in an envelope. They'd roll it up. They'd drop hot wax on it, put their signet ring in it, and stamp it, signify it. They would seal it. And nobody could open that letter except the designated receiver of the letter, the addressee. So God is using that analogy and say, I've sealed you with the spirit. You're bound for heaven. Nothing can interrupt your passage until you arrive in glory. You're sealed with the spirit. He uses that other analogy. We have the deposit of the spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 say, the Holy Spirit is the earnest of the father's promise. We all understand that word, earnest money. We think of it primarily probably with a house. We put down some earnest money. When you buy a house, at least in Denver, 99% of the people have to take out a loan because you don't have that kind of money sitting around, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So you put down some earnest money. You put down a down payment, same thing. The Holy Spirit is our down payment. He's our earnest of the Father's expectation. He says, I've given you the Spirit as an earnest deposit that someday I'm going to fulfill all of my promise to you and you will be redeemed. Not only will you be redeemed by Christ's blood, you'll be redeemed in glory. I'll make sure of it. You can count on it. You can go to the bank on it, we would say. So he says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit is the earnest of the Father's promise. He makes this deposit of the Holy Spirit. He says, Someday I'm going to redeem you completely. You've been redeemed now. You've been blood-bought. You've been saved. But I'm going to redeem you all the way to glory. And he says, it is the guarantee. It's the Greek word, arhoban. It means guaranteed. God guarantees our salvation. You can't blow it. You can't lose it. You can't mess it up. If you're really saved... God has guaranteed by his Holy Spirit and the deposit he made in you that he is guaranteed that you're going to heaven. The Holy Spirit will be with us until we get home. That's why Paul said this in Philippians 1.6. Being confident, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, will bring it to fruition, will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He started a work in you, and he's going to continue his work in you until you're perfected, until you're glorified, until you're made whole in the day of Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ returns. The anticipation of heaven, we groan. I hope that you groan, saying, God, I'm ready to exit this world. I'm ready to have my new body. I'm ready to be with you forever and out of this sinful place and the sinful temptations that I struggle with. We desire completion. We have the deposit of the Holy Spirit. Third, the preparation for heaven. We live. We live. I'm taking three words that Paul uses in this passage. We know, we groan, and now he says we live. The 
preparation for heaven. We live for heaven. And it's a life characterized by faith, he says in verses 6 through 8. Let's read those again. So we are confident, always, we are always confident, knowing that while we're home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We can't see heaven. We can't see Jesus in his glorified body in heaven. We can't see the Father. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We trust his promises. We are confident. Yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. So Paul says, I'm going to live and I'm exhorting you to live a life characterized by faith. That's what he's telling us. At home in the body means we're absent from the Lord. If we're absent from the body, that means we're present with the Lord. We get that. You can't be in both places. If you're at home in your body, that means you're not in heaven. And if you're absent from your body, that means you're in heaven. Paul gives only two places that Christians are going to be. They're either going to be in their earthly tent, their earthly tabernacle, or they're going to die or be raptured, and they're going to be in heaven in their glorified body. Those are the two options. Christians abide in one of two places. People either live either on earth or in hell. From an eternal perspective, believers are either on earth or in heaven. Believers are not going to have to worry about hell. Believers don't have to worry about limbo. Believers don't have to worry about purgatory. Those are all the inventions of men and really church to raise money. There's nothing in the Bible about limbo. There's nothing in the Bible about purgatory. Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. There's no intermediate state. Yes, we're going to be, if we're raptured and the tribulation is taking place and our new glorified bodies are not yet resurrected, if you die and before the rapture, I should say, and you're in heaven and your body hasn't been resurrected, yes, you'll have some kind of an intermediate state there. But from an eternal perspective, you're going to have a glorified body. So twice Paul says, verse 6, verse 8, we are confident Confidence, just like he said earlier in verse 1, we know. Here he says, we are confident. It's an interesting word. It means cheerful, bold, of good courage. So Paul was very positive about where he was going and what was awaiting him there. He was cheerful about the prospect of death, we would say. He was cheerful and bold and happy about the whole idea. Paul knew that whatever he faced, whether it be in life or in death, it would serve God's purposes. So his faith gave him great peace, gave him great confidence, gave him great security. A life characterized by faith in verses 6 through 8. The next thing he says is a life that pleases God. And I'm not going to develop verse 10 very much. We'll look at it next week. A life that pleases God. Because we will all at Christ's tribunal, the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, is what's mentioned here in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in his body according that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We will all face Christ's tribunal. So if we're going to do that, make sure, number one, make sure you're saved. Second, Make sure that you're living for Christ right now because someday you're going to stand before Christ and answer for your life. I'm not into scaring people, but that's kind of a scary concept. 
That's a scary prospect. That I stand before God by myself, not hiding behind anybody else, and I answer to God for my life. And he says, we labor because we desire to appear before him unashamed. I don't want to hold my head down and say, yeah, Lord, I knew what your word said. I knew what my responsibilities were, but I did my own thing. I don't want that to be the case. I'm going to stand before him, and I don't want to be ashamed. The judgment seat of Christ is a time of evaluation. It's a time of compensation, we could say, or reward for believers. Nothing to do with unbelievers. Is just for believers. A time of evaluation, the time of compensation. At this judgment, it will become clear not only what we did, but why we did it. Why did we do what we did? Every motive as well as every action will be brought to light. What did we do for Christ? What did we do for others? What did I do for self-glory? It's all going to become very, very clear at the judgment seat of Christ. Frankly, all of us would be better Christians, would be better servants of the Lord if we thought about heaven, if we thought about our home in heaven. Because for Paul, it wasn't just a destination, it was a motivation. Heaven is not just a destination. Yes, it is. It ought to be a motivation for us now in how we live. We'd be a lot better off if we contemplated both the Bema Seat of Christ, where we answer for our life, and then our eternal place in heaven. I've used this example before at funerals. Some time ago, Dr. Charles Fuller of the Old Fashioned Gospel Hour, I've heard around America Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people listened to the old-fashioned revival hour. He announced that he would be speaking the next Sunday on heaven. When that time came, he read the following letter he received from Dr. Harry Rimmer. Dr. Fuller reading a letter from Dr. Harry Rimmer. Dr. Harry Rimmer was a noted, well-known, and respected scientist who was also a strong Christian. And he was in the hospital with throat cancer. His letter said, next Sunday you are going to be talking about heaven. I am interested in that land because I have held clear title to a bit of property there for more than 55 years. I did not buy it. It was given to me without money and without price. But the donor purchased it for me at tremendous sacrifice. I'm not holding it for speculation since the title is not transferable and it's not a vacant lot. For more than a half a century, I have been sending materials out of which the great architect and builder of the universe has been building a home for me there, a home which will never need to be remodeled nor repaired because it will suit me perfectly, individually, and it will never grow old. Termites cannot undermine its foundation, for they rest upon the rock of ages. Fire cannot destroy it, floods cannot wash it away, nor Locks nor bolts will ever be placed on its doors. No vicious person will ever enter that land where my dwelling stands. Now almost completed, almost ready for me to enter in and abide in peace eternally without fear of ever being ejected. There is a valley 
of deep shadows between the place where I live here in California, Dr. Rimmer is saying, and that place which I will journey in a very short period of time. He knew he was dying. I cannot reach my home in that city of gold without passing through the dark valley of shadows, but I'm not afraid. He was confident. He knew. I'm not afraid because the best friend I have ever had went through the same valley long, long ago and drove away all of its gloom. He has stuck with me through thick and thin since we first became acquainted 55 years ago, and I hold his promise in printed form that he will never leave me nor forsake me. He will be with me as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and I shall not lose my way because he is with me. I hope to hear your sermon on heaven next Sunday from my home here in Los Angeles, but I have no assurance that I will be able to do so. My ticket to heaven has no date marked for the journey. There's no return coupon and no permit for baggage. Yes, I'm all ready to go, and I may not be here while you're talking next Sunday, but I shall meet you there someday. Dr. Rimmer, brilliant scientist, but committed believer, understood heaven, and it motivated him. He understood the beam of seed. It motivated him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is talking about both of those items. So let me ask you, do you know Christ as Savior? Do you know that someday you're going to receive a glorified body that will spend eternity with our Savior, our Lord? If not, settle it today. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Zach. Christian as a believer here today. Are you living with one eye on eternity, are you thinking, you know, this world I'm just passing through, I'm going to make my life count. I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to squander my life. I want to make it count for eternity. You can, and we should. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for passages like Second Corinthians 5 that drill down to us that the reality are the things that we cannot see, not the things that we can see. They remind us that this life is quickly passing. And I know anyone here that's in their 80s or even 90s would tell us that. They say, oh, it's passed by so quickly. So help us to live for you, for others, for the gospel, for things that make a difference. Help us not to allow these thoughts and these scripture passages to assume part from our heart and our mind is our prayer. Help anyone that might be here uncertain, unsure about their eternity to get it settled today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.